every year the uh, calendar flips over. And every year on one particular day on the calendar year, uh, on one particular Friday, even more specifically, there is um, a word that's placed in front of that day. And uh, the word is good. Um, And no matter what year it is, sometime in early spring, this day comes along that's called Good Friday. And uh, I've been a believer in Jesus and a follower of Christ for many years. But for whatever reason, on this particular year in my life, uh, I've been pondering the question more than I ever have. And that question is, why is Good Friday good? And even more importantly, do I really believe it? Is there evidence in my life and existence that this day, this particular day that we're celebrating now, that we're remembering now, is it really good? And has there been evidence of my life to portray that? And so to answer that question, to discover that question tonight, we're going to focus on one conversation in the Scripture. And for those of you that know the Scripture to some extent, you know that there were many conversations that happened around the death of Jesus. There was a lot of fast talking because the the elders and the scribes and the chief priests and the high priests in the Jewish council wanted and desired a quick death of Christ because their entire trial of Jesus was was illegal. They broke many of their own rules, and we'll talk about the, uh, some of those tonight. So because of all of the fast talking, there was a lot of conversations happening. There were conversations between Jesus and his disciples at the upper room. There were conversations between Pilate and Christ. There was a conversation between Caiaphas and Jesus. There were a conversation between Herod. All of these talks. Tonight we're going to focus on one. And in this particular conversation, in our few brief moments together tonight, I think we will discover why Good Friday is good. And so I ask you, are you ready to journey, my friends? Put up this first slide for uh, for me in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 57 starts out this way. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now let me share a little bit here. There are two different major phases to the trial of Christ. First, the Jewish phase, and that phase has three parts. And then the Roman phase. Well, there's two parts because... uh, The Jews are living in occupied territory. The Romans rule the land. And so uh, because of that, the Jews aren't able to condemn someone to death. And so they could do what they could do, but then ultimately it was in the hands of the Romans. But the conversation that we're going to see here between Caiaphas and Jesus is part two of this Jerusalem stage. The first stage, uh, as John portrays, was a conversation between Annas and Jesus that conversation actually took place between uh, the, the man who is uh, Caiaphas's father-in-law. Annas was the high priest, one of the high priests before Caiaphas. And there's this conversation between him and Jesus. He gets frustrated, and he says, send him to Caiaphas. And so here we have this interaction between the high priest, Caiaphas. Well, what's a high priest? A priest is someone who is the people's representation to God. And so in other words, in the Old Testament, they were the ones on the Day of Atonement, for instance, for the high priest, who would go into the Holy Holies, and they would make representation to God for the people. A priest is a significant uh, significant role in the Jewish world. But the high priest, the high priest is a role of great significance. And specifically, when I mentioned the, the Holy of Holies, it was on that day, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go in, behind the curtain, enter in, and make sacrifice on behalf of the people. 
And so this man that Jesus is about to interact with is a massively influential individual, and he started ruling about 18 A.D. His rule lasts 16 years, and uh, from all that Josephus writes, an ancient Jewish historian, uh, Caiaphas was well uh, respected by the Romans because he played the political game between the Jews and the Romans. And so this is who this man Caiaphas is. And he said that they seized him and led him to Caiaphas where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now this is crazy. First of all, this is the middle of the night. I don't know how many night owls are here, but they're having to to do this trial illegally in the night. Why? Because Jesus' popularity has grown among the common man. You remember, uh, for those of you that know uh, the story of the triumphant entry, when Jesus goes down from the Mount of Olives up the Temple Mount, that the Jews and, the, and those uh, followers who are standing there are seeing Hosanna and glory to God in the highest. He's becoming popular. And on his route from Galilee to Jerusalem, he's gaining a following. And so they want to do this trial in the nighttime illegally so that the masses don't get stirred up, so a big riot doesn't happen. And so they gather the scribes and the chief priests and the high priest. Well, this group of people is called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is the, for lack of a better term, like the highest court system in the Jewish world. So in the middle of the night, all of these big ballers, stay with me here, right, in the Jewish world have gathered to condemn Jesus in the night illegally so that they can avoid the riot. So picture the scene. Caiaphas, all of these massive influential Jewish people are there, and in verse 58, and Peter was following him in a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see, what's the word? The end. Now, for those of you that have been journeying with us at Matthias, we've been working now for six months in First Peter. And so here's our character, Peter, this, this uh, very scared man at this point. You'll remember that he's just cut off the ear of Malchus, He's not sure how to handle this Jesus being persecuted thing. You remember that that Peter was the one that told Jesus he couldn't suffer. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. This is this man, Peter. He's entered into the courtyard because they've all gathered at Caiaphas' house. And he's peeking in, peering in, curious, interested. What will happen with the Savior? Next verse. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They want death. They won't settle for anything less. They want Christ to be killed. They want Christ to be dealt with in a manner that will take care of him forever. And so this massive group of Jewish leaders have gathered for one purpose, to kill, to murder Jesus through an illegal trial. They want the death penalty. Well, the interesting thing about them seeking false testimony is in their own rules, if you were to give false testimony, you would be tried with the same punishment of the testimony against the person that you were going after. So in this case, those who brought false testimony against Jesus for the purpose of the death penalty would have been killed. But not here, not in this trial, not in this moment. Because these Jewish leaders want what they want, and that's the death of Christ. And so they've all gathered for that purpose, and verse 60 says, But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward, which is so intriguing to me 
because of this understanding that if you bring false testimony, you will be killed. And yet many come, which shows the influence of the Jewish council. They want Jesus dead, and they have influenced others into that realm so that people can bring false testimony against him. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in what? In three days. Well, for those of you that know your scriptures a little bit, you know that that they're quoting uh, what John writes in John chapter 2. But do you notice a slight difference here? Jesus in John chapter 2 never said, I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Jesus poignantly said in John 2, destroy the temple, not I, but destroy the temple, and I will rebuild it. Well, he's clearly talking about his death and resurrection, but they don't get it. And even in this premise of false testimony, they still have to mess it up. Next slide. And the high priest stood up. For me, as I read through the Gospels, you come to certain moments that you just have to get the beauty of. So Caiaphas has apparently been seated, and then he stands. And do you understand the picture that we have now? Listen, Caiaphas, the high priest of the earth, of the Jewish world, eye to eye with the real high priest. Caiaphas, this Jewish appointed high priest who will rule on this earth for 16 years as the high priest, eye to eye with the real, genuine high priest, Jesus. This picture is unbelievable. And this interaction between these two, one fake, false power and one real, genuine, compassionate, loving power, this interaction is gorgeous. Check this out. Have you no answer to make, he says. And you guys will remember in Isaiah chapter 53 that the Scripture says that though, uh, that though there was reviling against Christ, he didn't revile in return. First Peter 2 says that same thing. Uh, Caiaphas has stood up because he's getting frustrated. Talk! Would you please? Because he knows if he can get Jesus just to talk, that they can connive the wording in such a way that then they can kill him. So he's frustrated. Will you just say something so that we can finally kill you? Please. Have you no no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? He's, He's yearning for Jesus to say something. But Jesus remained silent. And for some of you who, um, who don't understand Jesus yet, let me say this. The scripture says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so the picture that we're getting here is a picture of God. Accusations, false, are coming against the Christ, and he remains silent. That's not our nature whatsoever. Our nature at accusation, especially false, is to come back with guns ablazing, but not Jesus. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I see that picture of Christ, That's a picture of Christ and of God that I desire to follow. Because it's completely anti-cultural. It's completely against our nature. It is the nature of God. Have you no answer to make? But he remained silent. And the high priest said to him, look at this. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, 
the Son of God. Well, the phrase, I adjure you, in our language, is as if to say, I swear to God. He's asking Jesus to make a vow on the name of God that he is or isn't God. Are you with me? Again, in our language, we would say it, I swear to God. People say that sometimes to bring emphasis to it. This is that kind of thing. So he puts it before Jesus. Will you vow against God now? I'm asking you. And Jesus responds this way. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now, God's sovereignty or God's plan is always, develop, is always revealing itself. But there are certain moments in the scripture or in your life where you realize his plan more. Where you understand his sovereignty more. Jesus has been on a path to die ever since he was on the earth. He was born to die. And with this simple phrase, do you get the beauty of God's sovereignty to as Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of God to crush him. We come to this heightened moment now where Jesus says what they've been waiting on. You say it so. In another place in Scripture, I am He. And they're wanting Jesus to claim His deity, to claim that He's God. And if they get Him in that, then they think they have the death penalty. But Jesus isn't done. Check this out. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Yes! For those of you that know your scripture, you know where this quotation is coming from. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where the Son of Man is clearly prophesied, sitting at the right hand of God, coming in a cloud of glory. Jesus quotes Daniel 7, as if to say, hey Caiaphas, and this isn't to rub it in his, in his face, this is just the truth. Hey Caiaphas, you stand as, as the apparent judge now, but let me tell you something, uh, this won't be the last time you see me. Because there's going to be another day when seated at the right hand of God the Father in all of the Father's glory and our glorious God that you will see me again, Caiaphas. Get this picture. Caiaphas knows Daniel 7. So if you say it so wasn't enough, Jesus quoting Daniel 7, do you get it? Now Caiaphas is chapped, so much so that he does this. Then the high priest tore his robes. Interesting. This is an ancient Jewish way of portraying deep sorrow. But Caiaphas isn't sorrowful. Caiaphas isn't remorseful. Caiaphas has an amount of rage building up inside of him that he is now able to, in in a theatrical way, portray it because he has him. So he tears his robes before this whole Sanhedrin in a moment of theatrics, as if to say, yes, we have done it. And he said, he has uttered blasphemy. Blasphemo is the Greek word there, and it literally means to bring evil against, either by word or deed. So the claim of Caiaphas is that Jesus has blasphemed God because Jesus has claimed to be the Son of Man and therefore God. But he hasn't. He hasn't done anything guilty. In fact, he has just portrayed the truth. He is God, and therefore he is innocent, and therefore this quotation of blasphemy is incorrect. Check this out. What further witnesses do we need? 
You have now heard his blasphemy and you can picture his rage growing. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. They have what they want. He deserves death. Did you hear him? He said he was the son of man. Let's kill him now. He deserves it. It's go time. And look at this. Then they spit in his face. Before when I've read this passage, I pictured the common Jew getting riled up by the crowd, spitting in the face of Jesus. And I think we could agree that there's nothing more humbling than being spat in your face. But this isn't the common Jew. This is the Jewish Sanhedrin, the council these high-ranking Jewish folks, and they stoop to a place of hatred that they spit in the face of the Son of God. If there is not a stirring inside of you of this deeply rooted, how could this happen? Then friends, we must question our love of God. Now check this out. And some stopped, or or some slapped him rather, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that, that struck you? In another place in Scripture, they blindfold him, begin to hit him, and ask him to prophesy. This crazy picture of what Christ went through, humbly, to take on the sins of the world. Now, you may be wondering, okay, so it's a good conversation, Caiaphas and Jesus, but, but how does that show us that Good Friday is good. Caiaphas the high priest, looking at Jesus, the real high priest, face to face. And in one moment of sovereignty, listen to this, one tears his robe. And it means nothing. And the other will tear his flesh as the real high priest. And that blood spilt means everything. One tears his robe in ignorance and one his flesh in obedience. One on the path of destruction and one on the path to glory. But even bigger than that, this conversation encapsulates the human heart. The irony of Jesus being accused of blasphemy and then those that accused him spat in the face of the Son of Man. The irony of that blasphemy. The irony of the accusers accusing one who has not blasphemed and then spitting in his face. It's me and you. Every one of us. Born with a blaspheming heart. With a wretched, depraved, dark, flesh-ridden, lust-driven heart that naturally will blaspheme Christ. And the power of the Gospel which no other perceived God 
can ever claim. Is that Christ, though taking this accusation of being a blasphemer, goes to the cross to save blasphemers? That's the beauty of the gospel. He's being accused of being a blasphemer, and then he dies to save those who are born blaspheming. That's the beauty of what Christ does on the cross, church. Is he takes our dark, ridden, selfish, driven hearts, and for those hearts born in blasphemy, he dies, and he bleeds, and his flesh is torn. And that's why Scripture calls him in Hebrews the great high priest. Because he becomes our substitute. He becomes our sacrifice. He makes representation for us to God. And so in this fateful conversation between Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, and Jesus, the high priest for all time, we see the beauty of why this day is good. It's it's good because I was once lost, but now I'm found. It's good because many of you, though born that way, Christ is saved. It's good because we just watched four folks say, I desire to follow Jesus. And so the question for me and you tonight is, do you believe that it's good? You may say, well, well of course I do. I, I mean, What do you mean? I'm I'm even here tonight to celebrate the fact that I believe that it's good. But would you just agree with me if we really understand how deep our depravity was, how much of a blasphemer we were, and then understanding how the cross of Christ could envelop us in His grace, that taste of grace and mercy wouldn't you agree with me that the expression of gratitude would be a little bit higher in the Christian church now than it is? Wouldn't you agree? So I ask myself today, Mark, do you really believe that today is Good Friday? That what happened on the cross, His grace is completely sufficient for every broken piece of my heart. My answer to that question is found in my life. And it will be found in yours. And it was found in a bunch of disciples who post the resurrection of Jesus went and died for it too. They believed that it was good. Do you? Do you? Some of you have no idea who Jesus is and you've come here tonight and I'm so glad that you're here. And and let me just tell you that this message of the grace of Christ is you can stop running You can stop trying to find your identity in everything but the cross. You can stop right now and believe that this day is good. That a sacrifice is sufficient. And so the early church has the way to remember his sacrifice so that they would never forget it. That they would never forget the goodness of it. Jesus Breaking an ancient tradition of the Passover meal for the first time during the meal. Breaks bread and said, this is my body. That had never been said in any Passover meal ever. But he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. 
and do this in remembrance of me. And the picture is, remember how good my sacrifice was. And the great thing that Scripture says is a sacrifice was once and for all. There no longer needed to be repeated sacrifice. Jesus did it all. The blood dripped down on the cross, the flesh tearing of the real high priest. That sacrifice was enough, even for us 2,000 years later. Isn't that beautiful, church? And then he takes the cup and he lifts it high and he says this. He says, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. And they had never heard those words before. This was a new phrase in the Passover meal. The new covenant represented this no longer rule, law-based, written Jewish culture, but now freedom that comes through Christ, the true high priest. And so he said, take and drink and do this in remembrance of me.